I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Love Letters is brought to you by Progressive, where customers who save by switching their home and car save nearly $800 on average. Quote at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who save with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Recently, I had the chance to sit down with Douglas Williams. He's the chef and owner of Mita Restaurant in Boston, and he's kind of a big deal in the local food scene. We got to talking about his wife, who inspired him to make big changes in his spiritual life. Douglas tried to put into words all the ways he fell in love with her. <sighs> Obviously, beauty is one thing, but it's so much more than than beautiful. It's that's interesting. I've never like I've what never, she looked no, like. She has really nice, like slightly uh, uh, lower eyes. Her eyelashes are nice and long. Cute smile. She doesn't go overboard with it like me. She just is so pleasant and peaceful to look at. I don't really. I, I, I'm going to start, like, getting overly emotional if I talk about her lips and her cheeks and, and her neck. And it's, it's going to keep going down, and I don't want to—that'll be—that's not for I, 18 or older on this podcast, you're, so I'm going to keep it. You're going to make me believe in romance again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> From the Boston Globe and PRX, this is Love Letters. I'm Meredith Goldstein. season, we're talking all about how people know important things in a relationship. We heard from my married friends in Austin who initially wanted very different things from each other. We heard from Anna Sale about how she knew she was ready to share money with her now husband. And we heard from Lance, a man who's wrestling with this question of knowing right now. He and his wife are working to salvage their marriage after Lance cheated on her with a man. Hey, Meredith. I just wanted to send you an update as to where things are at with me currently. Lance left um, us a voice memo recently with an update. He had sent his wife a candid five-page email laying out his feelings, regrets, hopes, and worries about their marriage. The first day that she read the email, uh, things were really bad. <laughs> if I'm being quite honest, they were really bad. I could tell that she was really hurting. She said things like, I didn't love her anymore. And in spite of the fact that I said in the email several times how much I did love her and the things that I uh, respected in her. Day two went a little bit better. Day three, she approached me and said that she actually really appreciated the email and she was glad that I wrote it. Uh, we, I think, were able to come together on some really important things that we haven't been able to come together on or compromise on in the past. Lance says he hopes his email would spark a dialogue between them. Our 20th anniversary was just a few days from that conversation, and we kind of hadn't made any plans because of where things were sitting. And we ended up 
making some last minute plans, uh, traveling for the weekend, had a really great uh, 20th anniversary. Um, today, where I'm sitting on the other side of that weekend, I think that I really feel some hope. I don't have all the answers yet, but I do feel that we've got a fighting chance. And so I just wanted to let you know uh, that as of right now, things are looking up and I'm excited to see what the future is gonna bring. Thanks for everything. We'll check back in with Lance a bit later this season. If you heard Lance's full story in an earlier episode, you know that both he and his wife grew up Mormon, a religion that places the highest importance on families and staying together. It's a tradition that Lance and his wife share. But religion can sometimes be a barrier for couples, especially when two partners come from different faith backgrounds. How do you know when you're ready to leap over that barrier? And how do you know what it's going to be like on the other side? This brings me back to Douglas Williams, the chef you heard at the top of today's show. The story starts with food. Food was a big part of Douglas's life growing up, long before he became a chef. I grew up in Atlantic City, New Jersey, two blocks from the beach. That was our daily activity, was to go to the beach. It was the only free thing to do. My mother was Syrian-Lebanese, and um, she always made tabbouleh or kibbe, homemade yogurt. Now, thinking about it, it's, it's wonderful to think about, but at the time, it's just like, Mom, why yogurt again? <laughs> My dad was a chef, um, and that's how they actually met, was in a restaurant. He was the chef, and she was the cocktail waitress. Douglas's earliest memories are of standing on a milk crate, learning how to make eggs with his father. And just stir the eggs, and he'd teach me how to, when to add the butter, when to add the cheese, or um, how hard to cook it. And then when I was 15, I wanted to just get a summer job, so I started working at Wendy's. And Wendy's was cool because once I found out, do you know why Wendy's burgers were square? No. Because Dave Thomas doesn't cut corners. Dave Thomas, founder of Wendy's. And I was like, that's so <laughs> sick. That's so awesome. It like blew my head up. I was like, okay, I want to be, I was like, that was like my Michelin, like all I needed to hear was that. I started working there, and I just realized shortly, I was like, I'm like dropping these nuggets. I'm like doing the fry. I'm like, these are coming out perfect every time. I'm loving a junior bacon cheese. I was like, oh. <laughs> but I was the only one that was into it. And everyone else was like, what the fuck is, what is wrong with this guy? <laughs> so I was like, you know what? I think I need to take it a little more seriously. He works at a restaurant in southern New Jersey called the Smithville Inn for almost three years. And instead of taking out massive college loans to go to a university, he enrolls in culinary school. Then one day he's reading the school newsletter he comes across a photo of a famous alum who had his own restaurant in Boston. Douglas thinks, I'd like to go work for that guy. At the time, Douglas's mom was sick with cancer. Boston still felt close enough to home. After months of badgering this alum, Douglas finally gets a call from the chef. Soon after, he packs his bags and moves to Boston for the job. It's 2006. The place is called Radius, I remember Radius as the place to go if you were a serious foodie in Boston at the time. I was working at Radius, and during the time, I, I had a Friday night off, my first Friday night. And my chef, I asked him, I was like, you know, where do I go? I just want to dance. I just want, I'm not looking for, to do anything. I just want to dance and just enjoy. And he said, you got to go to this place called Middlesex. Middlesex is this bar near Boston. People go there to dance. Douglas has a good time there, so he goes back to the club on a few subsequent nights. And on one of those nights, he meets someone on the dance floor. I 
somehow bumped into her or got or someone bumped her into me. We turned around, looked at each other. I saw her curly hair and we decided to talk for a second. I told her I worked at Radius and she was like, oh my God, I always want to go, you know, you know, the whole line. And I gave her a card, did not exchange numbers, just the Radius card and told her to call and make a reservation and come in. So she took that business card, called, made a reservation. And that reservationist said, oh, um, Douglas is here. Did you want me to transfer you? And she like transfers her and she's like, oh no. She like hangs the phone up and like, was like, I don't, don't want to, it's weird. I don't know. She didn't, she didn't like that, that situation. So the reservationist came to the back and said, someone was just calling to make a reservation and they asked about you. And I said, oh, that must be her. So I called her back off the number that she called from. Douglas tells her on the phone that he's excited to see her at the restaurant in a few days. But when she arrives, she's with a friend who has the same curly hair he remembers from Middlesex. It had been dark in the club, so Douglas isn't totally sure what the woman he met looks like. I was sending different servers out to go tell me which one had the curly, dark black hair that, you know, was tall. And that, and they were like, shit, they're the same people. Like, they're, they're, I think they're twins. I was like, no, they're different. I was like, just, I'll go out there. So at the end of the meal, I went out there and I was like, oh, so happy I got to meet you. And da da da. And they were rolling out of there because we fed them like a million courses with wine. When you walked out and saw two women who kind of looked the same, mm-hmm. were you able to tell, oh, that's the one I talked to? Yes, yeah. Well, she made it apparent and kind of gave me a, a certain look. You know that look. It's that, that look. It's, the, it's, the, it's that I'm yours sort of, sort of thing. You know, it's, that, it's I see you too. Her name's Deborah. In those early days, she and Douglas can't get enough of each other. They talk for hours on the phone. I haven't done that since like early high school, talking to a girl till five in the morning and basically not going to sleep. I was in terrible shape the next day, as was she, but you know, I, when, it, when it feels that right, you, you go with that. Douglas learns about Deborah's upbringing in Canada, how growing up with two older brothers made her stronger, how her mother was a prominent political figure back home. When the relationship becomes more serious, it's time for Douglas to meet the parents. There's just one potential hang-up. Deborah is Jewish. Douglas is not. He grew up going to church. As I got to know her, I obviously wanted to take things further, and as did she. But there was a little blockade because I knew that, you know, I was, I was smart to know that Jewish parents would like their Jewish child to most likely marry a Jewish person. I wasn't going to let the exclusion feeling stop me from taking on the rest of my life, especially loving someone who I've just felt so deeply uh, connected to and, and wanted to make work. We'll be back after this short break. We're back. Douglas meets Deborah's family, and it turns out the religion thing isn't a barrier at all. They like him a lot. He becomes part of the family. Past the meeting uh, of the parents, I started to show what I was capable of, and I think that impressed them. It made them proud. It made them think about what possibilities their daughter could have with me in a relationship and possibly even think about the prospects of marriage. 
Deborah and Douglas get married on the waterfront in Halifax, Nova Scotia. A chief justice marries them. Douglas's Pentecostal Baptist family and Deborah's Jewish family come together to witness the union. Deborah's parents make it clear they don't expect him to convert. But after, he starts to think about it what it means to be Jewish, what he loves so much about Deborah's family. How did the conversation begin uh, about converting? Yeah, so it's not just a, I want to flip the switch. You are, you just live it. My experience with Judaism and people who are of the Jewish culture, it's just about creating a tighter family and making sure everyone is aware of where everyone stands, asking questions. And I was getting that from this culture and from these events and from these interactions in a part of Deborah's family. It wasn't a a switch of, do I want to convert? It was, do I want to be around these people more? Absolutely, yes. He says he didn't talk to his family about his interest in converting. He wanted that to remain personal. Douglas's father had left when he was six and didn't return until Douglas was 15. And his mother died of breast cancer before he and Deborah got married. What had been your faith, or how would you have described your own religious um, before that? So from a young age, my my father's side of the family was Pentecostal and uh, Baptist, Christian. And it gave me good grounding, gave me good perspective. But as my mother started to get sick, it became less about religion for her and just about surviving and trying to get me to a good place. Because she only had one shot, one child, just herself, and she didn't know how long she was going to last. So she had to give me everything, and religion became not as not up not the upfront concern and i started to keep a good spiritual side but not religious side and i think for me those are two separate things the biggest part of of thinking about converting or at least just learning more that's the that's the biggest nugget is just wanting to learn more about how did my wife become who she is Can you take me through the moments where you sort of looked at her or looked at her parents and said, I'm interested in exploring this? Being interested in exploring what could be further was a long-form discussion. It was many times away in Florida. It was going to a bar mitzvah. It was going to synagogue. It was going to, you know, shivas and feeling it. Because you can't do it unless you feel it. You can't be told that you should have to be this. And if they and if they did tell me I had to, it would be a, it would be a turnoff because that's not what it's about. And they know that. Douglas and his wife began driving to a Boston suburb for evening classes with a rabbi. They would go roughly twice a week for a year to a basement in a synagogue. Anything that I'd like to do in life. I I have to be passionate about. I I can't just do it. I can't just work a job. I can't just do a thing to make money. I can't just do a thing because I have to do it. Anything I do, whether it be converting, whether it be the, you know, working hot days in the kitchen, I have to would want to do it for free and for no pay and for, for almost no benefit because I just absolutely adore it. I love it. So going to these night classes to to start the conversion process was something I enjoyed. You have a few people 
that are there. You have your rabbi, uh, you know, patiently waiting for you. And he's also so so passionate about what he's doing and what he wants to show you and how he wants to relate to you. And how could you say no to that? And there's people from all over the world that have their own story of why they want to do this. And it humbles you. Like this soul-touching uh, 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 beauty that you are trying to expand within yourself. You can't help but but um, fall in love with that sort of process. And when it's about you and when it's about yourself and making yourself better, you can't. It, it's a beautiful thing. One of the things Douglas comes to love about Judaism is all of the questions. And questions are big with Jewish people. It's why my family's Passover seders take so long. It's interesting because when I first started this job 10 years ago, it was brought up to me that many advice columnists are actually Jewish. Douglas and I talked about why that's probably no accident. I mean, my whole family, it's like, we won't shut up with the questions. And the whole nature of this job is asking questions. Why do we do things? And so when you said that, it meant a lot to me because... It seemed like it was also the marriage you wanted, a marriage where people could talk about anything, where you could yeah. delve into... Anything, yeah, it all comes out. <sighs> Once you start to realize that the people around you are just as interested in you as you are interested in finding out things about them, it turns the tide of where you want to be um, in life with that person or that family. And all I've ever wanted was this cohesive family and when they ask you when they ask you more questions about yourself than you ask about them you think i think you're you're in the right you're in the right corner that was one big check off the box that my mom always told me about she's like make sure people if you're going to be friends with someone if you're going to be you know uh, uh uh involved with someone make sure they like to ask you questions too and how could you deny that Douglas says that the only real pressure he felt to convert came when he and Deborah decided to have kids. He wanted to be Jewish by the time his kids were in the world. And let me be clear, it was really a self-imposed pressure. And that's what I think is at the heart of how to know when it's right to adopt a new religion for a partner. Douglas converted because he wanted to, because he wanted to understand and grow closer to his wife, because he saw it as a way to truly join her family, I know it can't always work that way. But in this case, Douglas didn't feel any obligation. There was no resentment when it came to changing his religion. There was just the family and the wife he loved, and the choice that he felt was best for him. It is a massive undertaking, and it's a huge commitment. That's what I found to be so inspiring and so, and give me the the endurance to make it through the the process and to then there starts because that's only the process then you have to live it and then you have to be it and then you have to like uh, breathe it and if you're doing it for someone else it's so less likely to be something that makes you happy douglas's story started with food how it came to shape his life how it helped him meet his wife but of course i wondered how that story has continued with the jewish menu um, there's a lot of things that are super delicious. Are you talking about gefilte fish? I love gefilte so fish. So do I. So good. And it, I always get all of it because no one else wants to eat it. I'm like, absolutely pass it to this side. Of the Same table. with me. I'll take it all. I, yes. Give me, give me the matzah. Give me the, give me the gefilte. Give me more mustard. I'll take it every single bit of it. <laughs> 
thank you for telling me your story and for telling me you like a filter fish. Love. And love. Love. And I can't wait to eat more at the restaurant. Yeah, I would like that. Sing your song just for me, Andrushka. Sing it now just for me alone. Love Letters is a production of the Boston Globe and PRX. Our senior producer is Amy Padula. Our executive producer is Scott Hellman. Ned Porter does our audio mixing, sound design, and mastering. Devin Smith is our audience engagement manager. Special thanks to Brian McGrory and Linda Henry. Our music is from APM. How did you know something in your relationship? Are you struggling with this very question right now? Do you have a love problem? Email the team at loveletters at boston.com or find us on Twitter at lovelettersblog. And if you like the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Learn more at loveletters.show. I'm Meredith Goldstein with the deep thoughts. Like, I bet if Wendy's made gefilte fish, it would have square edges too. Thanks for listening. Oh.